have good news for some of you who maybe haven't been able to be here through the whole of this series so far. We have not made a lot of headway. Um, it seems I have nearly slowed to a halt in our progression through the book of Ephesians. And, um, well, I did not plan to be in the same passage that we were in last week, again this week, but here we are. Um, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there's so much to unpack, it, it just requires us to slow down a little bit. And, and so I want to encourage you before we get started this morning in reminding you that, yes, we have moved to a slow progression, but things are about to pick up. When we get to the end of Ephesians chapter 4, the truth is we're going to move pretty quickly. It's necessary for us to slow down through the description that we are in now so that we will understand what we are moving quickly through at the end of the chapter. And so to give you some context to that, Paul has written this letter to the church in Ephesus he has expounded upon what God has done for them in establishing a new creation inside of them. He elaborates on their old condition or the sinful self or the state that every person finds themselves in from the point that they are born to a point where God calls them into salvation. He describes this adoption that we have as a Christian family. And then he encourages the believers to live a life worthy of the call that they have been called with. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. That they would maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's a difficult encouragement just because I think the language isn't really all that clear. What does it mean to maintain this unity of the Spirit? The passage that we've looked at last week and that we're looking at again this week explains what this unity is. And so that's where we're at. That's what we're looking at. Our goal then is that we would understand this unity established in the body of Christ, this manifold wisdom of God revealed through the glory of His church. I'd ask then that we pray as we prepare to turn to God's word for our study. Our Father in heaven, we come to you so thankful for your word and for the clarity that it does give us. There's times when we look at your word and we do make comments like the language isn't clear or there's more to understand here than we could possibly understand. And I'm so thankful for the encouragement that you give us that through your love we're able to understand infinitely more than is possible to know through knowing. God, I pray that you would help these things not to be riddles to us, but for us to understand them. That you would help us to see the truth that is in your law as we worship you together this morning. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray and ask all of this. Amen. For context, I'd actually like to read all the way at the beginning of the chapter, um, but our focus this morning will be specifically on verse 5 in our passage, so you might note that as we read along. If you have your Bibles open in front of you, please read along with me as I read out loud from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. 
I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Last week, we looked at this one spirit that unites us and this one call of this one hope that we hold on to. This week, the sermon outline is really easy. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. I didn't have to work really hard on my homiletical outline this week. Our passage gives us a pretty clear outline of these three components that underlay and undergird the unity that we have in the Spirit. Last week when we looked at this unity in the Spirit and this one hope that we cling on to, we talked about these things that are so common in Christians that they unite us with one another and that the application from that is so clear in the way that we engage with one another. The way that we uh, deal with different trespasses or different issues that may came up, that there's an attitude of love and, and even unity in our disagreements. That's not a riddle. There's one spirit that unites us, one hope that holds all things together. Despite differences and circumstance and background and opinion, when Christians come together seeking the will of God, there is only one will of God, and we can find common ground in that. Paul writes and continues to explain what this oneness is or this unity that we have that we are maintaining. And he calls one Lord. Namely, that's Jesus Christ. We have one Lord of our faith. Now, Lord, if you're not familiar with that word, and certainly in the first century times and even later parts of history, carries with it the meaning of somebody that has position or power and authority. A Lord is a master. As Christians, we come together and we say we have one Lord. There's only one head of the New Testament church. That is Jesus Christ. There's only one authority. We describe this one body that we are called to. Well, the body has to be controlled by something. Our bodies are controlled, obviously, by our heads. You don't have to be um, extremely familiar with the way that our, our neural structures work, but the, your, your hands don't move without your brain telling it to do something. There's a chain of command in the way that our body functions, the way that we move. Likewise, this illustration of the church being the body of Christ, there is some chain of command that makes it possible for the body to function, to do ministry, to do the things that we come together to do, to worship God in a way that is glorifying Him. It all starts with the command that comes from our Lord. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the, when, when I mentioned Christian creeds, what that is. But something interesting has happened throughout time as Christians have come together and they've decided, you know, it, maybe it's necessary for us to nail down what it means to be a Christian. And, and obviously we see this encouragement whenever we look at the New Testament and we read Paul encouraging churches to be careful of the doctrine that they allow to infiltrate the church and, and ways to identify believers that actually understand all of these things. And, and so it became necessary to come up with what's called a creed, similar to a doctrinal statement, or if you went to our church's website, you could go to the What We Believe page, and you can read, nailed down, what it is that we believe the Bible teaches. In the days of the first century of the first church, in the time that Paul was writing this letter, a common greeting among the Roman people would have been, Caesar is Lord. It's like saying, good day, Caesar is Lord, would have been the way that it was used. The first Christian creed to show up then was this simple phrase, Jesus is Lord. First creed, the very foundation, we have doctrinal statements that go on and on and on and elaborate on the different elements of doctrine. It's as simple as Jesus is Lord. Another greeting you might be familiar with, um, definitely in Indian traditions, uh, this greeting, you've probably heard somebody say, Namaste. Just to give you an illustration of what this means, namaste, if we actually translated it, it means I worship the God that is inside you. It's based off of this idea that, uh, well, it's, it's pantheism and it, it is a heresy, heresy, but it's based off of this idea that there is a God inside of every person that's unique and so it's necessary to worship this. I said it's pantheism. Don't go around saying namaste, especially now that you know what it means. Because like the Christians of the first church, when they heard Caesar is Lord, they were correcting that response by responding, Jesus is Lord. There is one Lord, one ruler and authority in our life. Now, as Christians, we gladly say that, but I think it's also important to realize that at the end of times, there will come a day when every knee will bow, Philippians 2.11. And every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. When that day comes, I imagine there will be tears of joy among the brethren and the sisters and the members of the body of all those who are in Christ. There will also be gnashing of teeth and anguish in those who had not confessed such a truth before that as they bow their knees. As Christians, we have one Lord. This unity that we have comes from our instruction and our obedience. Now I ask, what does this mean for us as Christians when we come together to worship or to maintain this unity of the Spirit that has been given to us? We're one body called together in one hope, and we live under one Lord. Let me explain what this means. First, that we believe in this Lord. I think that goes without saying. 
For Jesus to be Lord and master of our life, we have to believe in him. It's kind of an abstract thought. I think we throw that word or belief around in Christian circles a little too much without paying attention to it. But this is the fundamental principle that makes Jesus Lord of our life. Romans 10, 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, that we are saved. This is truly a remarkable undertaking in what God has done for us. Because the truth is, this belief that we have that Jesus is Lord isn't something that can come from any person. When we understand what Paul's written so far in the book of Ephesians, and, and I'm not going to do it this morning because I, I don't want to preach for an hour like I did last week. Um, I want to have a little bit of brevity. But if you go and look at Ephesians chapter 2, and we understand this belief, what we know is that no person born ever comes to a place of believing in God on their own. The old self that we talked about, that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, is described as dead. How can a dead anything believe? It simply can't be done. Without Christ, all people are equally dead. There are no degrees of deadness. It's absolute. And this is what's remarkable. The start of belief must be God reaching out in a divine way and creating that belief inside of us. The beginning of belief or conviction or the understanding of the need of a Savior is the divine God calling us out of our slumber. This is an incredible picture. And then with Christ, we're made alive, grafted into the family of God, and then called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I said that believing in Him should somewhat be pretty simple, but I do feel compelled to ask, do you believe? I wouldn't be surprised if there were some here this morning who didn't. We talk about the Bible and the teaching of God and everything that the church teaches, and, and I think I'm guilty of this myself, of painting things to be so complicated that we just sit back and we say it's not possible that salvation simply comes through belief. It has to be more complicated than that. There has to be some ritual that needs to be gone through or some undertaking, some education, some sort of program that makes it possible for us to know all of these secrets. But the truth is, the greatest truths are discovered by the simplest of faith. God's greatest truths are discovered by the simplest faith. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? First, that we believe in Him. Second, that we belong to Him. There's a possessive element to Jesus being Lord of our life. 
And some of you who are parents probably feel this burden, but whenever you look at your children who carry your name, there's some significance to that. I remember my parents telling me, be careful what you do because you represent us. As a Christian, you bear the name Christian. What you do reflects Christ. If Jesus is Lord of your life, you belong to Him, and therefore, you take care to protect that. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 13 that it was right that they call Him teacher and Lord because He is not only their teacher, but He is their Lord. And John continues to write and reaffirms even later in his life as he wrote the epistle of 1 John that we know that Jesus is Lord of our life by our obedience. Our obedience to Him. By this you know that you have come to know me or know Him, that you keep my commandments. Let me be clear, salvation doesn't happen because people are completely obedient to the law or they do what they are supposed to do or they live good lives. There is no amount of good works that will ever save a person. But once a person has made Jesus Lord of their life, they've been grafted into this family of God, they've been united through this one body, everything's been put together in this way. There is a natural inclination to obey God's commands, and even when a Christian falls or sins, there is a conviction that lives inside of them, a conviction that did not exist before they were saved. That conviction, that willingness, that desire to pursue God in obedience and to know Him, that's the evidence of salvation in the life of a believer. Let me say something. This is quite significant. Because when we make Jesus Lord of our life, when we belong to Him, if Jesus is not Lord of everything in our life, He's not Lord of anything. When we come to the Bible and we study it, there's people who would look through this and they would say, well, there's some things in the Bible that I, I just can't get behind. There's some ideas and concepts in here that I just, I, I, I believe the Bible's good, I believe in Jesus as Lord of my life, but there's some things in the Bible that I just cannot yield to. After all, aren't we more progressive than the first century church? If Jesus is Lord of our life, Christians have no license to decide what they believe and what they don't believe. If Jesus is Lord of our life, there is no liberty that we have in deciding whether we agree with what He says and what He doesn't. To make Jesus Lord of our life means that we have completely submitted in obedience to everything that He says. Even if we have trouble with it, there is an obedience, which means doing what we're told, when we're told, and with a good attitude. There's a yielding of self. All this for the purpose. I said that Jesus is Lord of our life, which means that we believe in Him, that we belong in Him, and finally, that we would become like Him. 
We talked about this so many times that there's this process of progressive obedience that happens in our lives. Christians are not born one day and suddenly the most renowned saint among us. The process of being made righteous comes through the process of yielding our lives to God. This is why discipleship is so important in the church. We talk about world missions. Realize world missions isn't going around and knocking on every door and telling everyone about Jesus. That's the start. But the real commitment is in discipleship. The Great Commission is go and make disciples to help people to grow in their faith that they would be edified. When we come to church together, our purpose in being here is not just evangelism, but it is the edification of the saints, that we would be raised up, made more mature, made more holy, that we would be more righteous, that we would continue to grow in our knowledge of everything that God has given to us, that we would be made like Jesus. To the point that when people look at us, they would say, They're like Jesus to the point that when we get to heaven, when our sanctification is made complete, when the brothers and sisters of the body of Christ are united all together, that we would be an image of Christ, not just as the body of our Lord, but that when God looks at us as individuals, he would see the righteousness of Christ. Last week, I spent some time talking about disunity and the things that can cause that, the division and and divisiveness and the way that the cowardice of man and being unwilling to confront somebody with a real problem and give them the opportunity to reconcile. When we are united in the body of Christ, there is something tangible in this, not just in the way that we live our lives, but the way that we function as believers. When we make Lord Jesus Lord of our life, we believe in Him, we belong to Him, and we become like Him. Truth is, As believers today, on this side of eternity, all of us have the the reasonable response to one another that we can say, please be patient with me. God's not quite done working on me yet. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. But I'm committed to being obedient. I'm committed to yielding myself, making myself a living sacrifice on the altar of God, as Paul instructs in Romans chapter 12, that I would become that living sacrifice. That I can become like Him. Jesus is Lord. We're called together not just in this one master that we follow, but in the one faith that we share. I said that belief is an interesting word just because I I think it's, it's somewhat abstract. What does it mean to believe in God, that He's been made our Savior? We understand these things of the the Bible, that God created everything, that He created it because He loves us and He wants a relationship with us, but our sin separates us from Him. It creates an invisible barrier that makes it impossible for a holy God to have a relationship with sinful man. But God... In all things, and all wisdom and provision and providence, he knew that our sin would come and come as a consequence. And as a consequence of that, his desire to have a relationship with us would be distorted. 
In fact, even so much that the image of God made born into every human being would be distorted. Not destroyed, but distorted. Because there's no amount of good works that's ever going to save us from ourselves or our own need of sin or even the consequence of sin, which the Bible clearly says is death. Only the payment made in full by one Lord can unite us so that all people, everyone and anyone who would place their faith in Christ would know that they have been saved. All of this comes about through God's word. There's no amount of intellectual exercise that we go through in the church to try and figure out the way that God loves us or the way that he functions or what he does. What makes our faith unique is that there is an authority in it. This is just a part of a lordship again, isn't it? That we yield to what Jesus has given us. The the Holy Spirit has inspired men, carried them along through the inspiration of the Spirit, that they would record God's breathed out infallible word, that we could sit here this morning and read it, drill down into it, coming to a halt in these three verses that we've been in for so long now. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Think about what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. If you wanted to look there, you could. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Even everything that Jesus did is in accordance with what is written through God's inspired word. Paul says, I preached, you're being saved. I made sure to explain what the purpose of the gospel was. We say belief and we say faith and we use these as vague words. There is nothing vague about what our faith is. We should not confuse uh, our faith as something transcendent that we've reached out to try and understand. Paul pointed to the gospel which rests in the veracity of scriptures. There is a foundation of our faith that we can all agree on. And it's through this truth that we find unity in the body. This wonderful doctrine that Paul starts to expound upon in 1 Corinthians, it's the doctrine of imputation, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed onto the believer. Paul describes this picture that we're body, that we're grafted in, that we're made one with the Lord. And last week we talked about his salvation experience on the Damascus Road when Paul was crucifying, not crucifying, when he was, um, oh, the word's gone, when he was uh, um, causing mayhem and, and uh, there's a word that I'm trying to find for, that's it, thank you so much. He was persecuting Christians. 
And a light shines around him. This is recorded in Acts. A light shines around him and he hears the voice of Jesus speaking to him. Paul, why do you persecute me? I think the reason the illustration of the body is so apparent and so important to Paul is he realizes in this moment in his own conviction, in his own calling to faith, that what he does to Christians, he does to Christ. There is a oneness and a unity in the body that we have been called to. The righteousness of Christ then is put on to every Christian who is found in Christ. It's put on to their account. Just as Jesus on the cross took the judgment of God that was deserved for every man onto himself. Imputation happens two ways. The imputation of our griefs is carried to Jesus, and the imputation of his righteousness is carried over to us. As according to Scripture, Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Gathered together as a Christian body, we are not united by an idea or a concept, not even a creed, as I mentioned earlier. There's no deceitful philosophy in what we do. There is, in truth, no form of creativity that influences my understanding or should influence your understanding of who God is, what he's done, or what he is doing. Our faith is on the one solid, recorded, preserved testimony of the Bible. My faith is in the wounds that lie across Jesus' back. Our faith is shared in the holes that are in his hand through the puncture in his side. Our faith rests in the historically affirmed fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified although he were righteous. That being perfect, his sacrifice was sufficient for the sins of the entire world and for every person who would place their faith in him. I said we would move fast this morning. I'm already to the last point of my sermon. One faith, now we say one baptism. There's something unique about the way that people are called to God. I've heard testimonies of people that have... um, Remarkably traumatic past and just extreme transformation as they come to know God and the way that they live their life. Some people grow up in households where they've been taught all their life the ordinances of God so that eventually at some point they realize their personal need of a Savior. And actually, this is my favorite kind of testimony because you grow up your entire life hearing that every man is sinful. Every person has a need of of a savior, that the world is completely wicked and depraved. And and we read about it in the news and we say, yeah, the Bible's right. The world really is wicked and depraved. People can't not get themselves together. And we've tried all sorts of things. We've tried educating people. It doesn't help. There's still no unity in the world. We've tried um, 
uniting people around agendas and ideas, and there's still no unity in the world. Oh, but this is amazing. One day a person realizes that all of those people out in the world who are depraved and wicked and completely, totally living in disagreement with God includes them. And it does. The description that we have, all of the complaints that we have in the world includes us. Through that conviction and realizing that we have a need of a Savior, we're able to come to the same Savior that completely transforms people with these remarkable testimonies in the exact same way, in the same remarkable manner. While we might have unique testimonies, there is nothing unique about the work that God does in calling us to identify with Him. We're united, not just in one body, not just through the Spirit of God that indwells every believer, not just in the hope that we have in our future that calls us together, not just in the Lord that gives us command and, and uh, lordship in our life, not just in the faith that called us to knowing Him, but in the testimony that we have that we have identified with Him. On the cross, Jesus took, I I described, taking the sins, the sorrows, the grief of the entire world so that He could become the propitiation for our sins, the substitution, so that we could identify with Him, so that we could say that we are one body, that we are one with Christ. What you do to me, you do to my Lord. What you do to me, you do to my brother. The way that I care for you is the way that I care for myself. Because if we are in Christ, there is this unity among us. In baptism, when we really understand what's taking place here, it is a picture of exactly this. That no longer are we the old self. Just as Jesus died because as the, as the righteous payment for all the sin of the world, we die to ourselves. This is why humility is so important in the mark of a Christian. Why Paul writes at the beginning of this chapter that in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, that we would be eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit. Because it's already established, but we have to be humble to maintain it. Because your testimony actually doesn't have anything to do with what you've done. The testimony that's inside of every believer has nothing to do with your calling to salvation. It has everything to do with the divine God starting to wake you out of a slumber, pulling you into a knowledge of Him, convicting you of your place in this world and therefore your place as a contributor to the unrighteousness and the wickedness that we see. So as we submerge a baptismal candidate, they say to the world and everyone who witnesses, I am dead to that self. And through the power of God, the righteous propitiation of God, the same God that called Jesus from the grave when He was crucified and made Him alive again, 
I am raised up again in a new self, no longer who I was, but who I am today in Christ. A new creation. I'm raised and no longer going back to that. A Christian does not crawl back into the the grave. Truly, being a Christian and certainly growing in maturity as a Christian, certainly contributing to the ministries of the church, participating through the exercise of our spiritual gifts given to us through the grace of God and His Holy Spirit, all of these different things cannot happen when we identify as ourselves. I preach this morning. My name's Derek. Do you realize that Derek, who is here today, is no longer the Derek that was when I wasn't saved? Do you realize that I'm a member of the body of Christ? I'm just one part. Do you realize that who I am is not significant at all? Because everything that I am is in Christ. Because I believe in Him. Because I belong to Him. Because I'm becoming like Him. Do you see yourself as a part of Christ's body? This humility is so crucial to our understanding. I I said Paul's building up to something, and we're going to move through it quickly. If you glance down through Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see where he's heading. He describes the offices, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Where we are heading in this study is understanding our unique place in the body of Christ, our unique contribution, our unique calling, our unique function. If we understand the body, no one would ever ask the eyeball to smell. The body of Christ, then, functions in the same way. This Uniqueness that we have in the way that we function as the body depends on the different ways God works in our lives. But we cannot get there if we do not understand that we are one. Because then something completely asinine begins to take, take shape. The eyeball considers themselves more important than the hand. The nose takes no regard for the ear. Without all of the members of the body, there is no function. There is no purpose. We're actually flailing. So many Christians consider themselves out on an island as they pursue their spiritual maturity. There is none of that, nor can there be any of that, without the proper identification with the body. And that's why even in baptism, our identification is not just with Christ, but it is with the body of Christ. The body of Christ that brings the testimony of God, that convicts us, that teaches us all of these things, that helps us to grow into manhood, that calls us into edification. The the identification that we find in baptism is with the body. That's why it is a mechanism to which we bring members into the body, where it's to join a New Testament church. We join 
in different ways, by, by profession of faith, by baptism, and by transfer of a letter where you've been baptized somebody else, you're a part of another local body. It is through baptism that the new baptismal candidate is identifying with the body that they are associating with. They're saying, I'm raised in this new life as a part of you, as a member of you. If we do not see ourselves as a part of the whole, we will never be able to understand the personal calling that God has in our life. That's why this is so important. Why it's worth slowing down to walk through these three verses so slowly. Because we live in a world where the focus is completely on the individual. I mentioned namaste. We live in a world that is self-focusing and self-centered. What makes you unique? From a biblical perspective, all I can say is what makes you unique does not matter if you are not a part of the whole. Now, it's important. Oh, it's necessary for growing into the mature to mature in manhood. It's necessary for growing in the fullness of our faith and understanding these doctrines that Paul has laid out. In fact, it's the application of it to understand what makes us unique. But unless we see the unity that we have in the body, it means nothing. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one identification with the body. My notes are simple this morning. What unites Christians in this unity of the Spirit that we have been called to is the Lordship of Christ in our life, that we believe in Him. Have you believed in Him? That we belong to Him. That we become like Him. We're united in the faith that brings us to this knowledge a faith that rests on the veracity of Scripture. And we've identified together and with Christ through the picture of baptism. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the testimony that you have given to this church and everything you have blessed us with. Lord, we ask you that you would continue to help us to grow and to know these things. God, that you would continue to call us into the maturity of manhood through a knowledge of your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now, that you would bless us as we understand the picture of baptism, that you would bless us with an understanding of who you are and who we are made in you. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray, amen.